The Sydney Opera House acknowledges the Gadigal of the Eora Nation, traditional custodians of Jubagali, the land on which the Opera House stands. We honour the long Gadigal history of gathering and storytelling and acknowledge the strength and resilience of First Nations people and communities past and present. Welcome to Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring talks and ideas from the Sydney Opera House. As an actor for stage and screen, Brian Cox has built a brilliant career on getting under the skin of tyranny with the exploration of power, control and fallibility. At Antidote 2022, actor David Wenham sat down with Brian Cox to discuss his depiction of the tyrannical media patriarch Logan Roy in the television series Succession, his body of work and its dissection of power. This event celebrated the actor's unmatched ability to fulfil characters that carry within them rage, fury and frightening acts of cruelty. This talk was recorded live at the Sydney Opera House in September 2022. Oh, it's a big place. (laughs) (laughs) With a lot of people. Good morning, everybody, and welcome. Born in Dundee, Brian Cox is one of the great Scottish actors with a, a career biography that is extensive as it is impressive. He has immersed himself in literally hundreds of roles to, uh, to great acclaim, garnering a swag of awards along the way. Brian Cox, Welcome to the Sydney Opera House. It's a great to be here. Thank you. Thank you very much, David. Uh, you know, I've, I've, I've seen this place over the years. I first came to Australia in 1986 with my eldest son. He was doing a film called Young Sherlock Holmes, and I came as his chaperone because I was actually going through a divorce at the same time. So my ex-wife said, "Well, you can take him to Australia." So. <laughs> And it was, it was so exciting to come here, but seeing this place, and I was like, oh, there. And, and I thought, well, that's somewhere I'll never go, is the Sydney Opera House. And it's extraordinary to find myself sitting here. It's incredible, really. In the brand spanking new concert hall. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and it seems to be acoustically very friendly, which mm. is nice. Mm. <laughs> All right, let's kick off with Logan Roy. Yeah. Uh, yes. He is, he is a fallible man obsessed with power and control. Now, your first question to the creator of Succession was, does Logan love his children? And a lot of viewers, I think, would say no. How do you understand what he does as love? Well, I think, you know, there was this, the evil that lies within, I think, was the sub-headline of this event. And I don't believe that, you see. I don't believe that people are fundamentally evil. I mean, if you look at a, if you look at a baby, a newborn baby, and there's this, uh, we're both Catholics, so we know the whole thing of original sin. And I just think it's a crock, absolute crock. <laughs> you know, you look at this baby, and, and the, you, the, that's, it's all part of getting into the system, you know, or baptize him, and then it's part of, or she's part of the whole thing. 
And I look at a baby and I go, no, that, that child isn't guilty of anything. There's no sin there. It's what happens to the child as it gets older, what it gets imprinted upon it. You know, some for good and a lot for bad. A abuse that is done to a child that then he becomes, an, or she becomes an abuser. So what is interesting about Logan is that for me, Logan is an abused child. Mm -hmm. And it was clear, I think, in I think one of the early episodes of season I think season one, later episode, later episode of season one, when he goes swimming and you see the marks on his back mm -hmm. so that you know he's been beaten at some point in his life. And so he is already a victim of something, but he's buried it so deep inside him. And his children, he really does love his children. I mean, Jesse Armstrong, our great creator, was very clear about it. How does he express that? Well, he doesn't. That's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he doesn't know how because he's, nobody's ever expressed love to him, you know, and I do think that that, is, that, that, that matters a lot. I think that matters a lot in, in the development of, of the human being and, and his character or her character. But you honestly believe that he does, in fact, love his oh, children? Oh, no, there's no question he loves his children. Or he wouldn't go on for so fucking long about it. <laughs> you know? do, do you think his kids love him? Oh, yeah. They love him. Uh, the reasons they love him are questionable, but uh, <laughs> no, they definitely love him. There's no question about it. You know, they, they, they do love him. And they're also caught because they're caught between a father who doesn't express love and the love that they have for their father. So it's created this vicious circle. And then, of course, what doesn't help on top of all that is the money. You know, they're so rich and they're so, and the children have this thing of being so entitled. So they're not very nice, and he realizes that about his kids, that they're avaricious in a way that he isn't. He's, and the other thing about Logan, which is very, very key, and it's something that people forget about, he is not Rupert Murdoch. Mm. He really isn't Rupert Murdoch because he comes from nowhere. Rupert Murdoch inherited something. Donald Trump inherited something. Conrad Black inherited something. Logan Roy inherited nothing. He created it all. So it's his creation, you know. Waystar Royco is his creation. And I think that makes a huge difference in terms of how you interpret the role and also where his history is. And we, we get things about his mother. We get things about his sister Rose. Ironically, um, it's very interesting because uh, Tennessee Williams in, uh, in the play... Uh, the Glass Menagerie, she's called Rose. Mm -hmm. And so there was, I think Jesse sort of picked up on that. His sister's Rose, and there was some kind of relationship there and tragedy there. So clearly there is, and the other thing they did to me on the show, and writers, oh, writers can be <laughs> such nuisances, they really can. <laughs> I mean, they're great, but you know, I'm sure you- We do need them, Brian. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> oh, we do need them, there's no question about that. Anyway, what happened was that, um, they decided uh, after, in the first episode, he celebrated his birthday and there was a big, and Frank, who he's always firing and rehiring, uh, you know, who played wonderfully by Peter Friedman, he uh, announces his, he says he was born in Quebec, Canada, which of course I didn't even know until I got to the first day that, oh, I was born, I'm born, I knew I was American because Jesse insisted he should be American. 
Adam McKay, on the other hand, because I thought he, he could be Scots. You know, he, there's something about him that could be, you know, Roy is, can be, is a Scottish name. And, uh, and, they, in the, and Jesse said, oh, no, no, he's got to be American. He's got to be American. So they made him Canadian. Anyway. <laughs> so then we start the show, and we get to the ninth episode of the first series. The ninth episode, and I've been, you know, I've played nine episodes. So, uh, Peter Friedman, where I was sitting, it was the big wedding thing down in, we did in Herefordshire. And so we're sitting there, and Peter says, oh, by the way, uh, they've changed your birthplace. And I said, what do you mean they've changed my birthplace? He said, oh, you're, uh, you're, you're no longer born in Quebec. I said, so where am I born? <laughs> and he said, oh, I, I can't remember. He said, oh, hang on. And he got out his device and he said, oh, yeah, here we are. Uh, somewhere called Dundee, Scotland. <laughs> and I said, well, that's where I was born. <laughs> and he said, oh, that's a coincidence. <laughs> and I said, it's a hell of a coincidence. I said, you know, I'm for nine episodes, I've been playing this yank, and suddenly I'm born in Dundee. And, and I went up to Jesse and the writers, and they're sitting there like sort of smiling gremlins. <laughs> and I, I go up and I say, so, you know, what happened? What is this? What? Oh, we thought it'd be a little surprise. <laughs> and I said, that's a hell of a fucking surprise. I said, after nine episodes, to find out that I'm born in Dundee. Did, did that change the way that you um, approached the No, role because the what they did reassure me of was that, Dun that he'd left the very... The, there was a form... Actually, he would be born in... The, he's much older than me. He's, you know, he's probably um, eight years older than me. And uh, so he would, he would have been born in 1938. And he would have been... Uh, it would have been, he would have been part of the kinder transport. There was a kinder transport that brought kids to Canada uh, when the war happened, and he would be part of that. And I think he had an uncle in Canada who was abusive, and that's where he ended up. You know? And then he came back to Scotland to start his career as a journalist. But it's all, it's never played, it's just yeah. all in the backstory. Mm -hmm. Now, Logan, Logan presents as powerful. But really, he's only, he's only just holding it together, and he seems to be one step ahead of the wolves. Yeah. What does he say about power itself? Well, I, I think his attitude to power is it's... It's, I, I, it's a very interesting question, that, because I, I'm not quite sure what his attitude to power is, because he's been so in that situation all his life. Mm. I, I think he's very practical. I think if a job needs to be done, he has to see it done properly. And, he, and if nobody can do it, he'll do it himself. And he's, and, he's, and, and he's a gamesman. What he does say about power, and what he says very clearly throughout to his children, he tries to remind them it's a game. What we're doing, what this whole business is, it's a game. If you take it too seriously, you can go mad. And he's never taken it seriously. He's, he's private about it. But it's a game that he's played. It's a, quite an elaborate game. And he sees that game all the time. But the kids don't get it. They see it as a matter of life and death. And of course, it's understandable because they are so deprived in so many areas. And that's all they see, their entitlement. They can see nothing else. But Logan can see his own history. He can see how the human experiment, how, you know, he, he and I both agree that the human experiment is pretty disastrous. You know, I mean, I'm an optimist. He isn't. 
He's a total misanthrope, really. And so that is what kind of pushes him forward. You know, that's what motivates him, you know, is the game. When you were asked earlier this year why people are so obsessed with succession, you said because people love to hate. Yeah, that's right. They, what what they, did you mean? Well, it's the fact, I mean, it's, I mean if you think about it, I, I think succession is far more smarter than those previous shows, but Dallas, Dynasty, there's always been, uh, people love to know about families and what goes wrong with families and the kind of, the fact, they love to have characters that they really don't like because they become addicted to them for some unknown reason. And I think it's something in our psyche, in our being, probably in our DNA that makes us go, what is that character? Why do we, why are we, oh, oh he's horrible. Oh, but we, oh yeah, but he's really horrible. Oh, no, no, but he's, so they're, they're always constantly on a push me, pull you thing. And they love to be able to dislike characters. I mean, it's, there's so many people who started watching the show and they really couldn't bear it. But then they watched the second episode and they, couldn't bear it slightly less. <laughs> and then they watched the third bit and they couldn't bear it slightly less. And then finally, oh, we're bearing this so wonderfully. You know? <laughs> and they love the show and it's, there's no accounting for it. And it's just human nature. I think we're attracted to that, that, that very thing that's sometimes repellent to us, you know. You said on a podcast that I listened to the other day and I quote, my talent came from deprivation. Anger and rage are a great source of ambition. Well, absolutely. Can you tell us a little about your, your childhood and how much of your childhood has fed into and coloured the characters that you've played? Well, you know, I, I, had, a, you know, I, had, a, I had a blissful childhood. Like, so I was very happy as a, as a small boy till I was about eight. Everything was great. Uh, I had a beautiful dad and I had a lovely mom. and we all got on very well. But clearly there was a tension between my father and my mother. My mother was very canny. And, you know, I have two older sisters. And they were, it's very, you know, with the, the recent tragic demise of our dear queen, you know, they, my sisters were known as May and Betty. And they were like the royal, you know, they were, they were in the 30s, they were very popular, the, those kids. And so a lot of people based their children upon those two. And my, my two sisters were like the princesses. They, they had that same thing. So everything was blissful. And I had a crazy brother. He was great. And a third sister who was more troubled by the two other sisters, the twins, but she was fine. So we had a very happy childhood. But then my dad was incredibly generous. He was a real socialist. And he had a shop in a very small community, but it was almost a ghetto-like community, mixture of Irish and Highland people had been, who had been the people who came. And my, my family originally came from Ireland to work in the jute mills of Dundee, and it was the women. My hometown, it's very matriarchal. 80% uh, of the workers were female because they could spin and they could weave, and that was what was required in the spinning and the weaving of jute. And jute, whenever you see a Western, and you'd see a wagon train, the covering of that wagon train would be made in Dundee. That was, that's ipso facto. So uh, that, was, that was the background. So I it was very blissful, really was. But my dad had this thing of wanting to enable people. And, you know, he would do extraordinary things, like he would work till 10 o'clock at night from 5 o'clock in the morning, 
and at nighttime he would go and help an old couple redecorate their apartment. And he just did it. He had that sort of, and, and he was taken to task on it by my mom, and, and, and he said, that's me, I can't do anything else. But also financially, he did allow people a lot of credit, which, and they were poor, and they couldn't always pay the credit. So he became, you know, he became an enabler in a way, because people would come into the shop, and he said, oh, pay me tomorrow, and they, you know, tick, everything was on tick. And then there was friends of his, and he did actually, because he had a received occupation, because he had a little grocer shop, he did well during the war. And he made a bit of money. In fact, he made quite a bit of money, which all evaporated because he gave it into businesses of reconstruction that was happening after the war. So he helped, he, he would back people. But tragically, he didn't know that he was going to die as early as he did. He was only 51, and he... He died within three weeks of his um, diagnosis of uh, pancreatic cancer. How old were you at that stage? I was eight, you know. And uh, it was a shock to us all. And it was a shock to my mother, who kind of thought she'd hounded him a bit because of her beliefs. And her great thing was charity begins at home. And that was the thing that separated them, in a way. Though she wrote this amazing which I only recently discovered, actually, amazing uh, kind of diary about the day of, after my father, the day after my father's funeral, and, and it was a beautiful piece of writing on her part about how much she loved him and how they had these misgivings and that ultimately she wouldn't have wanted him any other way, but it was a strain to her considerably. And then the fact that when he died, and we got his bank book. He only had 10 pounds in the bank, and that was it. So she both felt guilty and also, uh, you know, was devastated by his death because she loved him. And, and her, her mental health fell apart, and she tried to kill herself, and then eventually she had to have very painful uh, electric shock treatment. So that was the knock-on effect was you know, contributing to my eight-year-old deprivation. I also had all these sisters who had, these three sisters, who had, two of them had married, and the youngest one was going to Canada. She was emigrating, and my, my ma had all been in Canada. That was, she came back from Canada to marry my dad, ironically, 28, nine years before. But she, my youngest sister had set her mind on Canada, and my two older sisters enabled her to go, so I was left almost on my own. But I used to go and stay with you know, various sisters during holiday times, or even when it wasn't holidays. And my ma was in a hospital. So it was, but the irony is that I never felt it. I didn't realize that I was deprived or angry until much older. I realized that only when I was a student that I began to realize what I had come from. And that I had been, I had a lot of inner anger in me. And of course, that feeds the work. You know, and, and also, you know, you, I mean, I think you went through, I don't know if you went through a similar situation, but as a little boy, you know, you, I, you, I think you were pretty difficult at school. Yeah, well. Taking him. <laughs> and I was the same. And that was part of one's, you know, wanting to perform, to yeah. be, you know, to show, you know. And uh, it, well, it wasn't a particularly, you know, and then the teachers, because I was articulate, I had a teacher who used to send me for errands. So I was never in school, because I would go in the morning and say, oh, Cox, I need a, 
I need a, a stylus for my Phillips uh, record player. Could you go down to Largs and get... It's an 01762. <laughs> and, you, and you take that, and I'd say, right, sir, I'm off. And I'd go, and I'd disappear for the whole day, you know, <laughs> getting this stylus. And I'd come out and say, you know, I'd be just be in bliss, you know, playing truant from the, the school. But that in, interfered with my education. I, you know, I, we had a thing called 11 plus back then. I failed. Failed everything, so I was, and I was regarded really as educationally subnormal <laughs> as a child. But you know, I, I knew what I wanted to do. I knew I'd always knew what I wanted to do, and that was the thing that kept me going. Yeah. And I knew I wasn't going to be daunted by, you know, the exigencies of life. I just thought, no, I'm determined. I'll do it, and I, I did. Yeah, you have, yeah. Now you. Now, you've played um, a number of characters very, very successfully who could be described as evil. Yeah. Um, uh, Stalin, Goering, um, Hannibal Lecter. And as an actor, <laughs> as, as an actor, you, you don't judge the characters. No. and You go on a journey to, yeah. of exploration to try and understand yeah. what motivates them, why they do what they do, why they yeah. are the way they are. Yeah. There's, one, there's one film that you were in, Rob Roy, and the character you say you could not find any humanity in him at all. How, how was that well, as an actor? It was a brilliantly written role, and it was very hard to get his, the, the, his route, actually, because he was, he was so devoid. And then I realized that he was very much, the, the thing that came to me was that he was like a, a fallen angel. He was like someone who had seen grace and had been denied it and just became, he just thought, okay, I will just, I will just go for myself and it'll be for whatever. He was the factor, Killern. It was a great role, wonderful role, and, and really nasty sort of, you know, manipulative character. But I realized that the only way for me to get in was to find out that he'd been, he'd lost something, and this was his act of vengeance for losing something. And that legitimized the role for me. But it was hard to get into. I mean, I struggled with it for a long time, thinking, who is this man? What, is he, what does he want? What is he doing? Why is he doing it? You know, where, and it's, it is the why. You know, for acting, mm. it's always the why. And it's the why that promotes you into the role. And, once you, and then you get into the detail of the why, the intention of each individual why. And uh, that... He just came alive, you know, and I discovered his movement, physical movement, and I, uh, I based it on Babe Ruth, because I remember seeing Babe Ruth, the, uh, the, bas the ba baseball player, and he had this very funny way of running, which was slightly kind of retrograde, to say the least. And I thought, wow, that's an interesting thing. I, I think Claire might have that kind of run, you know. So that, so, and his opening is him running and bringing messages. So that I kind of added that into the mix. And that's the great thing. I mean, you know, David, yeah. that's the great thing about what we do, that we, we take all different colors and we say, oh, no, it's not green, it's not green, it's a turquoise. Yeah, okay. Well, I, I love your inspiration there, Babe Ruth, for that particular character. I was speaking to a friend of mine the other day who directed you in Churchill. All right. And he said that your inspiration for that particular character was based on, would you like to? Oh, yeah, Stewie, Stewie in Family Life, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's no, extraordinary. The, no, 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 I mean, us. I thought Stewie is the perfect Churchill. Seth MacFarlane Stewie is 
I mean, if you think about it, he's really Winston Churchill, you know. <laughs> you know. And, I, and I, that's what we... The, you, Jonathan, you're talking about yeah, Jonathan. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. I, 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 I totally... I was thinking, how do I get Churchill? And then I was watching Family Life, and I saw little Stewie, and I thought, Winston Churchill. <laughs> Definitely the child of Winston Churchill. Brilliant. Someone who knew all about power, control, fallibility was Shakespeare. Now, you... You debuted on the West End as Orlando, and as you like it, 55 years ago. I was 21. You were, on, you were in a production of King Lear with Olivia. You've played King Lear. Yeah. Um, you've been in... Um, you were, you had Titus Andronicus was legendary. Um, you've been in Richard III, Taming of the Shrew. Which Shakespearean role do you think Logan Roy resembles the most? Well, I think there's elements of a lot of Shakespeare roles. I think there's definitely the element of Lear you know, giving away his kingdom. Uh, the, there is that, you know, the Lear thing. There's also uh, part of, there's bits of Titus, the, Titus's, you know, <laughs> cruelty, if you like. Um, and I think that's about it. I think there's, uh -huh. I think in Lear and Titus, I think there's, there's nothing else I can think that's... But no, I, I would say those are the two roles okay. that were in hell. Titus Andronicus is... It's a play that actors, directors, theatre companies, they avoid like the play. Yeah. I, there are a number I, of obvious pitfalls and the fact that it... I imagine it would be extremely challenging to be able to stage. For those of you who don't know, it, it contains... Here we go. It contains 14 murders. Nine of them are on stage. There is a rape on stage. There's dismemberment. There is mu uh, there's humiliation, mental cruelty, and a bit of cannibalism. Yeah. It's a tough, go it's a tough night at the theatre. Yeah. Um, yeah. But what, what was it, Brian, in, that you saw in that character and in that play that made you so passionate about wanting to do it? Well, it, it went back to an incident that happened to me when I was playing the Scotsman, Macbeth, in, in India. I was on tour in India. And I, you know, I'm a Celt. And in order to progress into the British theatre, there was elements that one had to suppress of your own background, you know, in terms of RP, you know, how to speak and all of that, and a, a sort of moderation of acting, you know, which was, you know, what we see a lot of time from English actors, you know. And I... I went down that road, but it was, it, was, it was always not quite me. You know, I thought, you know, I did it, and I did it quite well because I'm not, not too bad an actor. So is is this what you refer to in the book as, as front foot, foot acting? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I did a lot of that, you know, where you do this, this very over-defined acting, you know. And I thought, you know, I was fine with it, and I was doing... You know, I was doing the Macbeth, it was going well, it was a reasonable, there was a few problems, but it was a reasonable production. But I had this dresser, and she was 16, and she was a katak dancer uh, in, in India, mm. you know, with that, all that amazing stuff, yeah, and all of that. And she was, uh, I, I got to know her, she was very young, and uh, she said to me one day, she said, um, I, I, she's very complimentary about my work. She said, I love it. She said, but can I say something, Mr. Cox? And I said, yeah, sure. She said, you know. she said I, I, I feel you want to move more. And I went, what? She said, when I watch you, I just get this feeling that you want to move more. 
and you stop yourself. And she was absolutely right because I was conditioned to a certain kind of style of acting. Now, I'd been influenced as a young actor when I started in, in Edinburgh. There were all these amazing actors who I mentioned in the book, Duncan McRae, uh, Scottish actors, Celtic actors, mm. who acted with their whole body, in a way. And I, start, I started to do, with her standing in the wings, and I would come off, and I'd say, how was that? Go further, she'd say, go further. So eventually, in the dagger scene, I was crawling all <laughs> over the floor. You know, and, and it, was, uh, it was so liberating, you know, and I'm probably a little excessive, but, <laughs> but I just, but it helped me understand a whole area of myself which I'd done that to. Yeah. And I thought one day the opportunity will come along when I can actually do that organically, that I don't do it falsely on a roll. Just, yeah. And then working with Deborah Warner, who is so intuitive in that way, we just went down that road, and I started to physicalize the whole role, you know, to the extent that when, you know, we, we invented everything, we did the uh, hi-ho, off to work we go, you know, when we, did, when we came in to do the big uh, banquet scene at the end where I feed uh, Volum, uh, what's her name? Oh, yeah. what? Tamara. Tamara, Tamara. yeah, thank you. A scholar, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I feed Tamara her children. You know, I mm. make them in a pie. pie and yeah. So I came up with a chef's hat and the full bit and doing the full bit of, you know, rather jolly, you know, seven. And she, and she says, what's this good pie? I said, yeah, your sons are in it, you know. <laughs> and she eats the pie. And, uh, and then all havoc breaks loose, you know. But it was wonderful to, to explore. And when Brooke did the show... When he did it with famous production in the 50s, Peter Brook with Laurence Olivier and uh, Vivian Lee, he cut any laughs. He mm. cut them completely. And I believed in the opposite. I believed that, that Titus deals with ludicrousness and that life in its most extreme is ludicrous, mm. you know, and it can be very, very funny and at the same time very black, very dark. And so I, I suddenly realized this was something that I could... I could physicalize in a way that I could go back to my culture, which was a Celtic culture, yeah. and not have to worry about sort of assimilating it for a South of England culture. I've got to say, it's a production that I, I wish I'd seen, but there's a, there's a clip on YouTube, well worth having a look at, um, of you conducting a masterclass with a group of young actors, and you, you perform spontaneously. Well, it wasn't spontaneous. I wish it was. All right, I could have come. No, no, I was, I was asked Are to Are you do prepared it? it? Yeah, well, no, what happened was I, was I was doing this master class and I don't like doing demonstration. You yeah. know, I think the most, I mean, the, the worst thing for an actor is to demonstrate how to play a role, you know, because that, that's inhibiting and not. And I didn't, so I said, well, I don't want to do that. And, they, and then they all sort of made me do it. And I said, okay, I'll do it. And then I did this. Thing. Yeah, and you used, you used um, some of the acting yeah, students as yeah. fellow characters in the piece. Yeah. The thing that, that makes it completely, um, well, it's completely compelling to watch is the fact that your performance is so deeply rooted in a reality. Yeah. Um, for a, a play that, as you say, is yeah. uh, a well, couple that's of people the, have, have described it as splatterfest panto. Yeah, that's right. But you have to realize it's extreme. You know, the, the, I mean, Titus is a man who's just dedicated himself to the idea of Rome. Rome has been his main 
reason, and he sacrificed 50 children to Rome. Now, when you get down to your last four, you begin to think, maybe something's not quite right. <laughs> maybe I've done something not quite right, something, you know, I've given it to this thing, which is this idea, which has not served me in the end. And that, once he gets notion of that, then the madness kicks in. But also, what Shakespeare did, and why Shakespeare's the best, no question, the best, is that he prepares for other plays. So in mm. Titus, you have Othello, you have Hamlet, you have Coriolanus, you have all the plays that he eventually comes to. So he's playing with these ideas, and he's a young man, a young writer, getting his rocks off. Unlike Leah, which is an older man writing about rejection in the state that he, I think, was feeling at the same time, particularly with his own family and the death of his son. And so there was a sense of his own rejection. And Lear is a much more difficult play to do because of that, because there is the deep rejection. And that, and that really did my head in, you know, doing Lear. You when played I, Lear when you were 41? I was 44. 44. 44 yeah. And uh, yeah, it was exhausting. I mean, I just thought, because uh, it, it's just relentless. Mm. And, and he's really putting the boot in, but not in a way that, that is kind of j joyous. It's mm. just kind of, he's given up in some way. And uh, it's, a, it's a great play. But it's also an ensemble play. You know, that's the thing. It's not just about Lear, it's about Gloucester. And it's about how all everything reflects to make the show work, you know. Now, I know you're not a method actor, um, but when you, were, when you were performing Titus, you were, you were going through a pretty rough trot with your personal life, and yeah. you've said that you, you used that to feed and channel into your performance. Yeah. Well, would, that be, would that be part method? No, it's, it's, it's just, you, you, you do whatever gets you through the day, you know what I mean? I mean, it wasn't that, it was just, I mean, what I don't like about method is that, 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 that there's a balancing act. Mm. When you have an ensemble, the most important thing is the ensemble. Yeah, you know? it's a team sport. It's a team sport, and it's a team, you know, and if you're not a team player, and some, so there's a thing that happens to American actors where they get so involved in the kind of the religious experience of acting that they forget about the team. You know, and it's all about their process, my process. You know, I've got my process here, and I really don't want to interfere with my process. And you go, oh, fuck off. You know? <laughs> I mean, really. Uh, it, I mean, the best actors are children. Completely. I mean, I, yeah. I, they're the best. Yeah. They're, they're the best, you know, because they don't have a process. Mm. You know, they just it's do organic, it. And it's organic. It's totally organic. I mean, I, there's another... There's another YouTube video. Oh, I I do. You know that yeah, one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the, the lesson. The yeah, little the, boy. Yeah, yeah Theo. Theo, Theo. Yeah, Theo, yeah, 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 yeah. Where, where Brian teaches a two-year-old kid um, Hamlet's to be or not to be. Get, get online, it's amazing. Yeah, because it's, it's just, yeah, he was wonderful. This Theo, he's a friend of mine's son, uh, and it was around Christmas time. He's now, he's now 13, and he was two and a half then. He's playing Lear now. Yeah, he's... <laughs> <laughs> Just about, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, he was this very smart kid with, he, he had a great thing about language. He was using words which two and a half year olds don't normally use. So I thought I would try him out on this and his father recorded it. And um, so I, I started to teach him to be or not to be. 
And it was fascinating because he would go off, he would lose it, he would get distracted, and then he would come back to it. And then he'd go off and come back to it. And I would sit behind him and feed him the lines. And, and then he did the most extraordinary thing. He made it his own. And you thought, this little boy has not done any research. You know, he just pretends. So there's a moment when he does the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. And I said, the slings and arrows. And he, he, he took it and he went, the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. <laughs> And I was, I was blown away. I thought, my God, that, I didn't say that. I didn't say, this was him. This is what he, a two-and-a-half-year-old, had come to. So all that crap about, you know, my religious experience, oh, give me a break. <laughs> now, the, the, the title of your book is Putting a Rabbit in the Hat, which is ostensibly alluding to how much work goes into yeah. something to yeah. look magical. How often do you put a rabbit in the hat and then you pull something different out? Well, that's a good question. Um, I think actually quite a lot. Mm. I think a lot the way you intend to put something in and get that, but it changes, you know, it, it comes out differently. And I think that's, again, part of the, the organic development of, mm. of, of anything that we do. So, yeah, I think that's feasible that, that there are certain things where I decide on one thing. I mean, I mean a, gro a great example of that was when I played Goring, because Goring has got such a reputation. And I was thinking about one thing, and then I realized uh, that he had had a mental breakdown, that at the end of the First World War, he had flown his whole squadron into Switzerland and abandoned the planes there and walked back to Germany, walked on and ended up in Sweden having a mental breakdown. And also the great thing, and this is what is, people seem to forget, was the punitive Treaty of Versailles on the German nation. Mm. I mean, it was really, really bad and they were, they were made to suffer a great deal. It wasn't, it wasn't thoughtful or caring enough. So naturally, they were waiting for somebody who was going to correct it. And then this young Viennese painter emerged, and uh, he looked at that old uh, Goering, and he thought, this is the boy. This is the boy who's going to take us. And that was Adolf Hitler. Mm. So I, I started going in a different direction, and I ended up realizing that this was something that he which was about his country, because all he wanted to do at the time of the Nuremberg, Pro uh, they called it the process, but the Nuremberg process, all he wanted to do was uh, die as a soldier. He didn't want to die as a, as a criminal. And so the only way he could do that was by taking his own life. And that was extraordinary. And he was an amazing character. He was an amazing, I mean, he was a cross-dresser. He was very, very flamboyant. But he did, and he was, of course, he was addicted to uh, pain medication. And that was the worst thing they did to him. They took him off all his medication during the trial, and therefore incredible clarity came. And we don't see it enough in the, in, in, in the show, but he ran rings around Robert Jackson because he gave them a lecture on how did we become a fascist state? From, you know, how did we, because it's a national socialism, you know, right. that's what Nazi means. How did we come that? And it's a fascinating journey. And you realize that it's all rooted 
in how Germany was being treated after the war. So there was a different vibe from the one that I thought, mm. so you're right, that was, that's where you put the rabbit in the hat and it comes out slightly different. Mm. In a recent interview with, um, with the scientist, Brian Cox, yeah. uh, you posed a question, why act? What answer have you come up with? Well, I, I, it's so odd because I'm no longer religious. I, I'm sorry, I, I don't believe in God anymore. I do believe in humanity. And I do believe that we are part, all of us are at a stage of our own evolution as human beings. And I don't think we attend to that nearly enough. And so why act? And it, it, it goes back to Shakespeare. It's, uh, you know, holding the mirror up to nature. Mm -hmm. It's what Hamlet talks about, Hamlet's advice to the players. And it's all there. It's all there. Why do it? So you're showing your fellow human being the pathway to our existence. Not about something out there that we'll earn when we're done. It's about being alive and what being alive is about and how when we go, what legacy we'll leave in terms of life to our, you know, to our predecessors and actually to our future as well. So I've, I find that really what's interesting. I mean, I find, you know, and I, you, know, you get that with young actors because there's, you know, that's, you know, we're all, we've got that vanity problem that, that plagues us and ego. But, and they, you know, you, you, you go into a class. I, I was teaching at the Stella Adler studio the other week and I was going and, and I said, so why act? And they were all, well, what I want to feel is, and I said, no, I'm not interested in your fucking feelings. <laughs> I want to know why you do what you do. What is the purpose of it? You know, I mean, entertain, but what is the purpose of entertaining? It's, and what you do is you create harmony. You bring people together. It's what all this is about. And that, that hit me when I was a three-year-old. When I was a three-year-old, I would be, it would be late at night on Hugmanay, New Year's Eve, and my dad would be in our small apartment, there'd be about 50 people in the place. And my sister, who had a great, still has a great singing voice, uh, May, would be singing, and everybody would be merry, and everybody would, and, and in those days, this was before tele, we all did turns. Everybody told a story, or sang a song, and it was, it was part of the environment that we had. And I would be summoned one o'clock in the morning. I'd be in my mom and dad's bedroom because my bedroom was the living room where they were having the party in a bed alcove, me and my brother slept. And I would come out and, in my pajamas and uh, my, my sister would introduce me and I would do Al Jolson impersonations at the age of three. You know, mommy, how oh, I love you. you know, it's embarrassing to think about now, but... <laughs> But anyway, that's what I did. But I remember the effect in the room. You know, there'd been a lot of bawdiness and drunkenness and people going, and suddenly there was this vroom of focus. And I just thought, what is that? You know, and it never left me what that was, that, that, the magic of that. There's something magical about the, what we, you're all capable of doing in this moment of sharing and Communal. being together. Communal. And it's real it is, it's real community. And to be part of that and to understand how one can create these occasions where community can come together. And that's why I think it's quite sacred what we do. And we, you know, we entertain, we make people laugh, we do all the other stuff. But what's important is that 
where everybody comes into the building and they come into a position of harmony to, for an event. And I, don't, I think it's unbeatable. Yeah, I'm with you. Billy Connolly. Uh, Billy Connolly, he did a whole routine on the percussive nature of the word fuck. Yes. Now, Peter Capaldi, he took it to new heights yeah. in the thick of it. Brian, why are the Scots so good at swearing? Oh, <laughs> it's a Celtic thing. We, we, you see, I, can I swear? Yes. Uh, okay, for instance, the Irish, the word, the C word, I'm going to use the C word, ladies. Please don't be offended. <laughs> so in Ireland, the C word is wonderful because you can be a bad cunt <laughs> and you can be a good cunt. <laughs> and you can be a variable cunt at the same time. <laughs> so I love that, you know, and they use that in a more decorative way. The Irish are great and I'm 88% I'm Irish, 12% Scots, which means I'm 100% Celt. So. So I, I love that. But then the Scots can say, fuck, <laughs> fuck off. <laughs> Just get the fuck. What the fuck do you want? Ah, oh, fuck off. You're a fucking pain in the fucking ass. Just fuck off. And I love it. It's just, <laughs> it's just a wonderful means of expression, you know. And it really, because the Scots are not very expressive, you know, my, my mother's great. She, when she loved something, she said, well, it was quite nice, you know. <laughs> and that meant the world, you know. But in order to really, and that's, it's called an expletive for a reason. It's certainly an expletive, you know, and uh, we do it well. And uh, Peter, Billy, and me, I do East Coast fuck, and they do West Coast fuck. <laughs> it's, it's that difference. <laughs> now, very good. <laughs> <laughs> power, power and control, they're, they're, they're two of the themes of today. Yeah. You campaigned for Scottish independence. Absolutely. Why? There's the answer. There you go. It's so important. You know, we have, we've had the top end of the bath for so long, we Scots, we really <laughs> have. And uh, I, it only came to me because I was... You know, I, I, you know, I was a big member of the Labour Party, and in fact, I did the voice of Labour for the 97 campaign mm -hmm. and helped get Blair elected. And then I watched what was the most extraordinary opportunity just drift away and become vapid. And then finally, the Iraq War and what's happened in Iraq and what's happened in the Middle East and what, you know, Cheney and Rumsfeld and the puppet Bush was after. And then Blair going down the road with them. And I just, and then we had the million dollar, million, not the million, the million man march, which was completely ignored. And I just thought, that social democracy, what's happened to it? Mm. And the only place that social democracy to me at that time was working was back home. I mean, the Scottish National Party had been a joke party when I grew up. I mean, everybody, I mean, I used to, I mean, up until my 40s, I would, I would talk about Sean Connery, and I said, Sean, you cannot be President Sir Sean Connery. It won't work. You know, you can't be both. You either have to be President Connery or Sir Sean Connery. But he had a, mm. I, I, I'm not sure if he ever wanted to be President at all. So I was kind of a bit suspicious about all that. But then I saw how it really became a party about the, about the country, about 
the need for, and you know, we've been treated so badly through the Thatcher years, but our, our whole history, you know, when I got into it, when I got into the, the clearances, you know, in the Highland clearances, the Hanovers wanted to put, clear the Celts and put Germans in, in Scotland. You know, it's weird, the idea that we'd all grown up speaking German. No disrespect to my wife, by the way, who is German, so. Uh, <laughs> But, so that was, a, that was an extraordinary thing. And, and they thought we were, you know, they thought we were subhuman. And that whole thing, just finally I was, I, I could see where we'd come to. And I thought, finally we need to be our own. You know, we need to be separate. We need to be in charge of ourselves. And we could function incredibly well, like most of the Scandinavian countries mm. function. And we have that similar feeling about us. And you'd keep the monarchy? Pardon? And you'd keep the monarchy? Well, yeah, we'd keep the monarchy. I mean, I think the, the monarchy is debatable. I, I think it needs to be thought about. I don't think it's, it shouldn't be. I mean, the, the, the only problem about the monarchy and it's the, is, is, the, is the notion of class. And the UK is still class-ridden. It's still feudal. It's still, there's still a lot of four forelock touching. I mean, when you see what happened in the north of England during, you know, the way that idiot Johnson was voted in, you know, and the fact that the Labour was decimated in the north of England. So it was a tragic, tragic thing. But it was also to do, well, obviously they know best because they've all gone to good schools and stuff. And that is still in the character. And I think the Scots have managed to kind of remove that. We don't have that anymore. We actually abhor that. So we need to be free. We need to be our own people. So, so looking, looking at, at that through a 2022 perspective, do you think it's an if or a when? I think it's a when now. I, I think it's very much a when because I think, you know, we, we've, we're always, the history of Scotland has always been more European than the history of England. The history, England has always had the xenophobic side to it. Whereas we've had a relationship with the French, you know, Mary Queen of Scots, Mary of Guise, they were, they were, we had a great relationship with Europe, mm. you know, from way, way back. And that, that's in the, you know, and the Brexit vote, we voted 62% to stay, you know, and the rest of the country didn't. And we had to take what the rest of the country voted, whereas I thought our nation should be able to express itself and we should, we should stay in the, in, you know, in the European community. But we didn't. And uh, I, I, think that's, I think that's a great tragedy. And, I think that, and that was all done for avarice and lies. And I mean, I don't even want to go into that because it was just so horrific, that whole Brexit thing. So I've just seen it again and again and again, another example of Scotland being traduced and personally, I want to see us be free. Okay, let me come to a couple of questions here on the Slido. Brian, he, Pete Evans says, he's a big fan, and he says, how does your approach playing a character over multiple seasons of television differ from how you approach a role on stage or film? Well, it's much quicker for a start. I mean, uh, uh, and also, well, it's much quicker in one way, except the, the theatre is, you know, it's a long you know, you're there for a long time. You know, you're, you're, you're doing a play, you do it for months on end. I don't know, it's playing a character in a, in a long-term TV series 
it's, it's got a lighter weight about it. You know, it's not as dense as what you have to do in the stage, you know. Or even with a film where it's so focusedly concentrated, you know that you've got... I, I think what the great thing about television now and is, is the long form. Hmm. The fact that there's no... You know, there's, the three-act structure is gone. So now we don't have, you know, the first act, second act, and third act. We just have the beginning and an endless second act. And I... <laughs> I love that. Yes, the juicy bits. Yeah, and you can just, you know, you can explore with it, you know, and that's, that's to me is the difference. And so, therefore, it's a much lighter process, and, and you're actually feeling you've got more space in you to do it, whereas when you've got a three-act thing, you're very concentrated on that, you know. Mm. Darius Williams would like to know, what was your most formative experience as a young actor? Well, I suppose my most formative experience was working with Lindsay Anderson. Uh, I was very, yeah. uh, this was in the late 60s, um, who was an amazing director, an amazing man, actually, altogether. And I was playing a part which nobody would have cast me because everybody thinks I'm quite boisterous, but I was playing someone. I mean, he kind of knew about my, he, he, he hit on something which was to do with my background. And he cast me as this character, uh, Stephen, um, in, uh, in this play by David Story called In Celebration. And I was playing a guy who had a nervous breakdown. So for most of the play, he was quite silent. He was quite a silent character. And he'd, he'd, he was a careers officer. And it's about these three sons coming back for their parents' 40th wedding anniversary. And the father's a minor. And the mother was sort of lower middle class, and she slightly felt she married beneath herself. But the minor, the elder brother, Andrew, he believes that there's something noble about the mining thing, and something that he missed out on because of his education, that he, was, he would have loved to have a sense of that. And then there's the middle brother who is a works negotiator, works in the, in the motor industry. And he's very all about negotiation and all of that. And then the younger brother is a, a failed careers officer, you know, who's had a nervous breakdown. So he comes at the beginning of the play, he starts the play off and he walks in the door and he hasn't been back in the room for this room for a number of years because he hasn't. So he's remembering, the, 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 he was remembering the, the, the territory where he is, the pictures that are around the house, the various artifacts. His father reads these westerns, so he picks up the westerns. So there's this moment when he's just there coming in and feeling the whole room to start with. Uh, I did that. I spent a whole morning on it once with, with Lindsay. And, you know, Lindsay was so, just took me through and he just said, you know, Brian, just explore that. And I explored it. And then we did it and it was going on for hours. And I thought, well, there's not going to be enough time in the evening to, for this moment. And then he finally said to me, he said, Brian, 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 don't just do something, stand there. And I thought, oh, I understood completely what I meant, which was just, I didn't have to work. Mm -hmm. I just had to be, be. And it was the being of, of the job that is, of course, the central focus, you know, the central of what we do is the being. And it was a, it was a revelation, you know, I just... Can I, can I just say, on that, that, that point of just being, 
I, I think um, one of the reasons that you are such a compelling actor is your economy of performance. Yeah. It's the things that you don't do, it's the things that you don't reveal, it's the things that you don't say that allow the audience to be drawn towards That's those right. characters, especially those that are on um, the more evil end of the spectrum. Is, is that a fair observation? Absolutely. I mean, uh, when you play roles like that, you have, to, you have to do that. I mean, also when you study it. I remember when I played Manhunter, when I played um, Lecter. Hannibal Lecter, you know. And I, I just knew because I based it on a guy who was... In Scots, actually, he was called Peter Manuel, uh, and he was a serial killer. He was the first known serial killer, I think, uh, in, in Scotland in the 50s, and he'd murdered a whole series, but, but he was fiercely intelligent. And there was also Ted Bundy, who mm. was also the same. And when you look at their character, there is just something which is not there, and it's, it's, it's a sense of morality, it's a sense of perspective that they've lost in their life through childhood through what have you. So you don't have to do anything, you just have to be. Mm. And that was the case with Hannibal. I, I just played it as though he was, I was unapologetic, he's super smart, and probably there's an aspect of him, spectrumy mm. in a way, even though I didn't know about that then, but looking back, I think that may be the case. So that meant that you could just allow the, everything to come through you without, commenting on what you're doing. Because you know? that's, you see actors and they, they tr mistrust themselves. So they'll do a, a note and you say, oh, you mm. don't need to do that. You've, you've managed that, it's fine. But you don't need to gild the lily, you know. There's a lot of gilding lilies going on. Oh, yeah. I think you know what I'm talking I'm about. I'm with you. <laughs> um, Michael K. Williams, who played Omar in The Wire, um, uh, his autobiography has just been released posthumously. And he writes, I don't disappear into a character, I come through him and come back out. But when I come back out, I'm not the same. What traces does Logan leave on you? Well, I, I, I think I'm a bit more of a joker in that way. I, I don't let Logan come too near me in that sense. And I actually like Logan. He and I get on very well. <laughs> I mean, he, he actually, he, he, I like him more than he likes me. Right. He thinks I talk far too fucking much. <laughs> he thinks I'm a big mouth, and he thinks less, less, less. That's what, he, that's what he always says to me, less, Logan. And he does it. He's a great example of doing less. So I go along with him, and I say, okay, well, less it will be. You know, that's <laughs> what it is. So we do have a conversation. And I have great empathy for Logan. I understand, you know, I was not a particularly good parent, uh, though my children disagree with me. But if you've got to say next to Logan, you've got to say, well, I'm pretty good. Well, yeah, but we had, we had something in common, which was how do you relate to your children? It's not a question that he, he does. I mean, it's not that he doesn't love his children. He loves, as I say, he loves his children very much, but he doesn't know how to relate to them. And sometimes I've found that difficult to relate to my children, especially when they were young. I can relate to them now, but uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's different, you know. And I just feel with Logan, that he's always been, he's always had this real difficulty of, uh, and so he's always expressed himself harshly and using the F word like nobody's business, you know. And 
you know, and being cruel to his children and saying, like, what do you want, a kiss? You know, stuff like that. And you go, oh, you know. But, and it's, but it's also witty. Mm. He's very witty. He's very funny. You know, and that's the key to that he, his brevity is quite jokey, you know. Now, you've reached a point of, um, of, of global success with this particular character. How's the ego? Well, the ego is always a, a problem. Uh, <laughs> well, it is. You know, it's there, and you have to look after it, and you mustn't listen to it too much. Uh, but, you know... You just, just allow, do you feel as though you're, you're allowed now to just <clears throat> let out your inner asshole, and people can just look at you well, and go, oh, that's right, Tim? I, I or do you feel the need to be kind all the time so people are no, going, No, oh, no, I, 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 I think you can let out your inner asshole and be kind at the same time. You know? <laughs> I don't think they are mutually incompatible. You know? <laughs> I think they are perfectly compatible. And I, I actually believe that. I, you know, I'm at an age now. I love being older. I mean, you, you, I tell you, you're going to have a great time. <laughs> you, you, I, no, David, you will have a great time because you just don't give a fuck. Right, yeah. You really don't. You just are. You know, you just say what you feel, you know, and you try to be as honest as you like. And sometimes, as in the book, I've offended a few people, but fuck them, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I'd love to be on a fly on the wall when you meet some of those people again. Well, I've got, there, there's several people gunning for me. I, I, <laughs> I had somebody who shall be nameless uh, mm. actually send me an email, and they were particularly upset about a very mild incident. And, uh, and it was actually an incident concerning Tony Hopkins, who I'd met, and he'd had a rough day at rehearsal, and he was telling me about it. And it was in the book, and the person who was directing him sent me an email saying, I was really terribly hurt by your story about me in the book. And, and I just, I, I apologized to him. I said, no, I had no desire to hurt you. But I said, what you don't understand is that we all have bad days in rehearsal. And it doesn't, him, it doesn't stop Tony Hopkins thinking you're the best director he ever worked with. It, but he, it, he can also have had a day which was really, really hard, where the director really gave him a hard time. I said, so don't be so fucking sensitive and move on. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, there, there, there was a question from a, 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 an actor in the audience who has asked me to, um, to pose this one to you. What was the most encouraging thing anyone said to you? And that's by a young man called Sam Neill. And he said... He's not here, is he? Yeah, he is. Um, Sam, he's Sam Neill. Yeah, he is. Oh, uh, can, and I he meet, said, can I meet him afterwards? I'll, I'll introduce oh, you. Oh, thank you. Uh, I love Sam Well, Neill. he said... I really love Sam Neill. I've never met him. I've always admired him. I think we're a similar age. I'm I know. He said, he, he said, I should have played that role on Succession. He said, I bet Brian does all the roles I was supposed to do. <laughs> I think it's probably a lot of that. What do you and think Riley, said, Prince of Spies? And I was very jealous about that. <laughs> I don't know if I can. So he said, um, his uh, uh, most encouraging thing, um, mine was from Warren Oates on my first movie, who said, see you in the movie, Sam. What was the most encouraging thing someone said to you? Oh, God. I have to think about it. Um, well, actually, yeah, the most encouraging thing that somebody said to me, and it doesn't seem like encouraging, but it was, is uh, it'll, be, it'll be a long haul, but it'll be okay. <laughs> Excellent. Who was that? It was, um, it was a director, actually. It was a, uh, well, actually, it was a director called, well, it was two people. It was my uh, 
Well, that, and the other thing was an actor called uh, Fulton Mackay, who was a great Scottish actor. And he said to me, Brian, 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 don't worry about being a star. Don't worry. Just be a good actor. And that was the best thing anybody said to me. And I'm quite encouraged. And the other thing was, Brian, it'll happen. It's going to be a long haul, but you'll get there. Well, you certainly did, and you're not only a good actor, you're a bloody great actor. And we've gone into the red. Ladies and gentlemen, would you please put your hands together and thank Brian Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, mate. Thank you. Watch this talk and others from Antidote 2022 on stream, the streaming platform from the Sydney Opera House. Register for free now and start watching at stream.sydneyoperahouse.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back again soon with more ideas at the house.